Hello, this is Carl McCarthy, welcoming you to the More Teacher Talk podcast, dedicated to professional development and all things positive about education. The aim is simple, to share the positive voices of teachers and school leaders from around the world. Hello and welcome. In this episode, I'm speaking to Dr. Colvan Atwal. He's currently the executive head teacher of two schools, author of The Thinking School, and he's a regular contributor to the Times Educational Supplement. We're exploring UNICEF's rights respecting schools and the impact of this approach. Exclusions and behaviour in schools have been dominant issues in recent years. The rate of fixed period exclusions has increased overall, with persistent disruptive behaviour remaining the most common reason. The majority of exclusions occur in secondary schools, and although girls' exclusion rates have increased at a higher rate when compared with boys, boys are still almost three times more likely to be excluded from school, with the highest rates of exclusion in areas of high deprivation. Pupils' vulnerabilities, individually or combined, increase their risk of exclusion. Factors such as SEND, including social, emotional and mental health needs, poverty and being from certain minority ethnic groups, poor relationships with teachers and challenges in home lives all make a significant contribution. Schools do not operate in a vacuum. As microcosms of society, some suggest that the current patterns of exclusion perpetuate society-wide stereotyping and discrimination, particularly along the lines of class, race, gender and disadvantage. But there are marked differences in exclusion rates between primary and secondary schools. Sometimes different approaches and values across schools appear to make a difference. Primary schools are said to emphasise pupil well-being and belonging in a different way. Preventative measures often adopt whole family or whole school approaches, along with supporting teaching staff to identify and manage behaviour in positive ways. Creating a positive school ethos and culture is one way to guide teachers, but also families and children. Robinson's 2014 review of UK empirical studies found that the formation of positive relationships amongst and between adults and pupils, together with the absence of bullying, were significant contributory factors in primary pupils' enjoyment of school. Where such relationships dominated, Pupils considered that this created a positive atmosphere and contributed to pupils feeling a sense of security within a school. UNICEF rights-respecting schools seem to demonstrate a track record of effective, proactive and preventative measures that support a number of related factors. In rights-respecting schools, headteachers are overwhelmingly positive about the significant impact on pupils' respect for themselves and others. Almost all head teachers involved report some or significant improvement in pupils' engagement with their learning on pupils' behaviour and their ability to develop positive relationships. Most head teachers in rights respecting schools report some or significant impact on pupils' positive attitudes towards diversity and overcoming prejudice. They report a decrease in bullying incidents, including bullying associated with prejudice of all kinds. As a result, Pupils demonstrated increased commitment to inclusion and social justice, often taking a lead in activities to reduce bullying behaviours. 
rights-respecting schools report that pupils have high levels of self-esteem and well-being. Children's rights are respected through the inclusive and respectful ethos that values everyone's contribution equally. As a result, children feel valued, safe and secure in these settings. With these things in mind, and with the problems that we face, when trying to improve schools, should we start to look at rights-respecting schools for some of the answers? Hello, Cole Vaughan. How are you? I'm very good, Carl. Very good. Thank you so much for, for joining me in and speaking to me today. I know you've had a busy day at school. Could you just share with us your life journey up to this point, just so we get an idea about, about uh, yourself, you know, your background up to here? Okay. Um, so um, I was, I've lived in London all my life. Um, I've been to schools in East London, secondary school, and uh, having completed my degree, I became a teacher in my 20s and I worked in a resource provision school in Stratford, which had uh, a number of children with emotional behaviour difficulties within the mainstream setting. Um, but it was when I became a deputy head teacher in a school not far from Barking in the London Borough of Redbridge, where um, I was introduced to the, the, the concept of a rights-respecting school. And it was something that I uh, immediately related to simply because of this 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 feeling that what what is our purpose um, as educators and to what extent are we focusing on academic success and are we developing citizens who, who care about the world and care about each other. As a deputy, I developed rights respecting school in that school and then when I took up my first headship in 2012, I started the journey again and refined it and developed it and I, I worked very closely with um, UNICEF at a strategic level in terms of developing the model of rights respecting schools. And we feel he has a very powerful impact, not only on the children, but also the, the adults that work within the setting. And I've said for a long time that I couldn't work in a school in which we weren't developing an ethos of rights respecting. Oh, I was fascinated by that. I was fascinated when uh, you mentioned that the first thing you do uh, at any school would be to look at, at how to become a rights respecting school. Yeah, why was that? Um, because I think it it you could be doing so many different things in school leadership. So in the last year and a half, I've been a head teacher of three different schools. So I'm head teacher at Highlands, and this is my eighth year. Last year, I was executive head over both Highlands and, a, and another school within the local authority. And I've now been asked since just before Christmas to go in as interim head teacher of a of a, of a third school. And the reason why I'm right respecting is is the first thing that I implement is because it cuts to the core of our purpose and it's the the thread that runs through everything else we do because you can look at the curriculum, you can look at your, your understanding of behaviour for learning, you can look at your understanding of pedagogy, but it all has to come from our core purpose. So everyone within the community believes in this concept of children's rights and giving children a voice. Then when you talk about behaviour and managing behaviour, and we don't use the word management, we talk about behaviour for learning, then we, we draw on rights respecting. When we plan our curriculum, we, we look at how we can implement the articles of rights respecting. In communication with each other as adults, we don't need us, you know, I go, I go into a school and they, they'll have a policy of staff conduct, code of conduct. Well, actually, well, what, what is... What is the purpose of, of a code of conduct? Why aren't we looking at being rights respecting towards each other? 
Then you've got parental engagement, again, from the perspective of rights affecting. So we're modelling as adults how we talk to each other, how we treat each other, how adults treat children and how we want children to treat each other. So it's a, it's a central philosophy, if you really believe, and I do, that values inform our actions, then rather than focusing on the actions of what we do, why don't we focus on the values of the why? Why, why are we here? What, what is our purpose? And it, it's amazing because, for example, the school I've joined just before Christmas, we had a training day, first day back in January. Half that day was dedicated to developing a, a right respect in school. I've set up a new parent forum in the school. And in the first meeting with the parent forum, it was like, uh, obviously the school, I wouldn't be there if the school wasn't having difficulties. And it was like uh, carrying a whip and a chair because parents wanted to, to, to vent and share their concerns. And I listened to them. The second meeting, and I always do this, was regarding my vision as for a right respect in school. And unanimously, every parent loves it because the, the argument is, we want our children to be good at reading, writing and maths, but not at the expense of being a good person. And and that that is our, our driving force, which informs our actions. So have there been any uh, uh, people along your journey or that have inspired you to, to follow this or, or to, well, to look into more Well, detail? it's Well, it's interesting because um, I, many years ago, about 11 years ago, I went on a leadership um, course with... Um, and it was, a, it was a course over time. And so the local authority encouraged uh, leadership teams to go together. And um, it was with a consultant. And he was, he was fascinating because he, he, he'd come from business. So he would share his philosophy of, of how to develop strong teams and how to develop practice. But one of the things he said is this concept of the why. And he said he'd been working with UNICEF and they were looking at introducing working through schools. Um, at developing schools as rights respecting, and I and they and there was going to be a pilot project, and I said I I said I'm I'm I would like to do that, and the the head teacher at the time said, well if you're gonna if you want to do it you have to lead it, and the key thing is if if you want your school to be authentically rights respecting, the head teacher has to be the the lead, the the, the model because if it's not something you can give to a coordinator. And so I, 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 I went with it. A number of schools went with the pilot, but most schools, it just, for want of a better phrase, died a death because unless you've got the whole school community behind it and you put everything behind it, it's not going to work because with anything, when it's to, to do with behaviour, you are only as strong as the weakest link. And, but what it does do is, is it says to the staff team, is this is what we believe in and this is what we're going to go for. And if this is something that, doesn't, that you don't agree with, then perhaps isn't isn't the place um, for you. So I was inspired. That was a guy called John Yates, actually. I was inspired by him. And then once I started working with um, the people from UNICEF, obviously you have a shared passion. Um, and as a as a because I'm quite prominent within the, the the partnership. That, for example, recently they were looking to appoint a um, I don't know the title, a, a operational regional lead for the for the southeast. And they wanted someone to, to, to be on there from a school's perspective. And so I was invited on the interview panel. Um, another time when, um, when there was an issue with Islamophobia and children, children's responses to that and the, the UNICEF were uh, approached um, for their viewpoint, um, they asked for children from our school to, be, uh, to represent on a panel. So it is because we go for it 100% and it's something that's part of the whole community 
children, parents, staff is what makes it so powerful. That's fascinating, and the and the authenticity that you're describing you know, is sounds like it's something that will turn this to to become something unbelievably powerful when when it's used as an approach with schools. So just just looking at that leadership uh, aspect, then specifically, could you describe a rights respecting leader or, or how that might be different to other descriptions of leadership? Well, I think the first thing which I've sort of hinted at earlier is a values based approach. Because really, uh, as a lead, you're modelling uh, behaviours, skills, knowledge, leadership. And if we focus on behaviours, we can't say that we're going to be a right-respecting school and the leaders don't behave in a right-respecting way. And I'll give you an example. When I first came to Highlands and we we're introducing rights-respecting, what I, what I tend to do is I spend a lot of time talking to children and I ask children their opinions of their teachers. And my favourite phrase now, and it's always really positive because this is such a mature learning community, to the children is, is your teacher rights-respecting? Are they always rights-respecting? And in my first year, there was one teacher who universally every child who'd had her as their teacher would would either be very quiet or or would say they didn't enjoy being in the class or that this person was really strict and, and... the, our expectations of children are internalised by children. So if the adults in an institution aren't displaying rights-respecting behaviour, then how are we expecting children to behave in such a way? So simple example is if an adult shouts at a child and then at playtime that same child then goes and shouts at another child, there's every likelihood that same adult will say to the child, well, don't shout. You shouldn't be shouting at someone. It's not nice. But yet we, 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 we don't mind those types of power relations in terms of often with teacher to child. So in terms of leadership, you have to, this is not a policy, it's not a scheme. You have to live and breathe it. And it has to be genuine because if it isn't, people will see through it. Yeah. So, what are the challenges then for for school leaders? Other than the fact that you know there has to be that authentic uh, model, it has to be something that it has complete buy in. But what would you say is the challenges for leaders who who want to then engage with this? I think one of the challenges is ensuring that everybody is on board. Now, now it's a, it's quite a disciplined process in terms of developing a right respect in school, which adds to its power. Um, and by that I mean there's a there's a methodology by which you develop a rights respecting school. So the first thing is you you look at your language. Now it's probably underrated, but having a shared language amongst the staff team, particularly when dealing with behaviour, is has a very very powerful and immediate impact upon children because they get that consistency of approach. And and one of the first things you do with rights respecting is you, you change your language. You talk about the children's rights, but also their responsibility to respect those rights. And that is the language that has to be modelled by adults to children. And that's a challenge because I'm also a governor of a secondary school and I know that children know exactly what expectations are when they go from class to class, which teacher they can have a laugh with, which which teacher really cares about them, which teacher they might be worried about or being too strict. That is probably the biggest thing. How do you get consistency of expectations and you can't do that overnight it, it happens over time and so that's it's one of those things that is for the long run now the school that i joined 
or I'm leading since December, is a, is a school that's requiring improvement in a category and is expecting an Ofsted. Now, if you look at the Ofsted categories, you've got leadership management, you've got uh, quality of education, you've got early years, you've got one to do with behaviour and one to do with attitudes to learning. Now, I would argue you hit three of those with right respecting. Actually, you hit them all because quality of education is about your delivery of the curriculum. But if, you, if as a leadership team, you are honest, authentic and right respecting, th- then, then that has an impact upon the culture, the well-being of staff in the school. But fundamentally, you're pinning your flag to the mast by saying to develop children's attitude to learning and to enable behaviour for learning rather than punitive measures or punishment, that is why we are a right respecting school. And the, in the last six weeks, I've had a meeting with the parent forum. I've developed it with the staff. Each classroom, each class has now got a right respecting charter. It's being weaved through the curriculum, but fundamentally through assemblies as the lead myself with, and this is a five form entry school. So an assembly would have 300 children, year one and two, year three and four, year five and six, 300 each. We would be celebrating our right respecting citizens of the term. We're talking about what it means to be rights respecting. And then as I walk around the school, I am reinforcing that language, whether or not children are lining up to go into lunch, whether or not they're, they're, they're asking appropriate questions in a class. And it has a very, very immediate and powerful impact. Beyond that is how it then becomes embedded over time. And, and you, can, you can take further layers, like how deeply is it embedded in the curriculum? How articulate are children in discussing their rights? And those layers is about a long-term approach. So what I'm hearing is that for what you describe is that the language is incredibly important and uh, the expectations are incredibly important. So if somebody was uh, brand new to this and this was the first time they'd heard about rights-respecting schools, could you just describe a little bit about about what what that actually is and, and how the language might be different to perhaps some more traditional forms? Okay, so say, for example, a child in a school has misbehaved, according to the teacher, and they miss their play. That's going to be slightly contentious because a child, one of the children's rights is a child, a child has a right to play um, and a child has a right to leisure. So immediately I'm saying to the staff team, well, is, is it appropriate for a child to misplay or should they have an opportunity to reflect on their behaviour and to consider what they could do to improve and have uh, less time for leisure? Uh, if a child is really disrupting and hitting other children, the argument might be a child has a right to an education. But what I say to the adult is that the adult will then say to the child, you, have a, you do have a right to an education, but you have a responsibility to respect the rights of others to that same education. And if you can't do that, then for a period of time we can choose to educate you separately or educate you on a table over there so do you see how the subtleties of the language moves Mm -hmm. away from punishment much more to uh, a responsibility upon the child to not only be aware of their rights but to respect those rights and to respect others and and that then develops children to be more solution focused because i know if i'm a child and i've had an argument with a child and I'm going to kick them, and what am I going to do? I'm going to get detention, I'm going to miss my play, then I can make a very easy decision to kick that child, and I'll take the detention. However, 
if I know the consequences, I have to engage in some sort of reflection and I have to sit down with an adult and consider what I could do differently or what I would need to do differently, then I, I'm going to, I believe that all behaviour is learned in the same way that English and maths is learned, but we just don't look at it in the same way in school. I mean, you've, you've written a fantastic book, The Thinking School, uh, which I really enjoyed. And, and I thought uh, for at a, le- a level of leadership or really any level is, is fascinating. You know, there seems to be quite a lot of crossover about this you know, idea of thinking, really re- reflecting. Yeah. You know, how, how is that different to rights respecting? And where's the overlap or you know, where are the similarities? Well, I, I, th- I think I didn't make specific reference to necessarily rights respecting, but it is fundamental to to the development of a, a thinking school because really when, when you look at leadership of a school the the level of synchronization you can get between the different strategies you implement so in the book I'll talk about talk for learning assessment for learning teachers engagement in masters reflection dialogic teaching to get children thinking and talking well you could almost start with rights respect in school because unless you're respecting the right of a child to share their opinion, to have a voice, to, to challenge, to debate, it's it's just complementary. So it sits very well within the philosophy of the thinking school and encouraging everybody to have a voice. And, and I mean, we've had we've had, we're, we're, I'm only twenty minutes walk down the road from the other school that I'm leading, but the teachers come here and they cannot believe how articulate and confident the children are but these children are coming from similar homes as the, as those in the other school so the power of this methodology and philosophy over 7 years is 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 what makes the real difference not like not in the short term but the long term growth even for children with severe behavior difficulties now i know there's a big debate nationally about zero tolerance and you know disruptive children being removed but we're just passing the problem on we're not dealing with it and we're not enabling children to have we're not meeting their emotional needs. And that's that's the key thing. I mean, on that note, just as an aside, your thoughts on exclusion in this context? Well, we've never had to do a permanent exclusion, and the only time we did, uh, you know, the only time I would consider even a, a, a fixed-term exclusion would be to, if a child was a danger to others. But that again would be part of the learning process. I think that we're too. And, and bearing in mind, in my first school, I worked with children who were in a specialist unit for emotional and behavioural difficulties. But I feel our expectations of behaviour amongst children are higher than the expectations we have for behaviour of adults. Every person, adult or child, has emotional and behavioural difficulties. If that wasn't the case, people wouldn't get angry, people wouldn't have road rage, people wouldn't get upset, people wouldn't uh, shout at bad refereeing decisions. And I think we need to change our philosophy of what behaviour is because it's a form of communication. And as children, we have a responsibility to enable them to have opportunities to learn. If that means that we have to adapt the learning environment within a school to enable them to succeed, then I think that's what we should do. And I think 90% of the prison population were excluded at some point from school. So we're not actually dealing... Exclusion doesn't solve anything at all, does it? I'm I'm interested about the the connectedness of this because it sounds like with if we give children the the language if yeah. we give them if we have the expectations and we equip them with the language and and then set the conditions for for schools to be rights respecting 
that that children feel connected and that adults feel connected, you know, yeah. a sense of connection. Yeah. So, so on the same thread then, how important is this for the international dimension uh, or, or, or in other words, say, how important is the international dimension in, in, for rights respecting schools? Well, it, uh, the international aspect is central to it. So it's about global citizenship. And um, there's a couple of things there because we want our children to value education. So sometimes they, they take for granted the fact they go to school. So we will share examples of children in other contexts who for whatever reason or, or challenges of life do not have that same right that these guys have to an education. So it's about really respecting the fact that they have the opportunity and the right for an education. But it's also about that, that there's only three countries in the world who haven't signed up to the United Nations Convention on Rights of the Child. And so I want these children to see that they're part of something bigger, that beyond their town, beyond their city, beyond their country, right across the world. And I think that's very empowering for them. The other thing is, it, it, you know, when you're working in an environment in which you're doing what you believe, it's going to sound strange, but you're impervious to Ofsted and the demands of Ofsted. And it's only through Twitter I, I realised the pressure that schools are under because of Ofsted. Now, we were in a situation where we believe that um, we don't need to necessarily teach British values because international or, or universal human values supersede British values. What we do do is we celebrate great British citizens and talk, and, and, and talk about it in that context. Now, when Ofsted come along, they have a script when they speak to children, and one of the questions is, tell us what British values are. And our 20 children that were chosen didn't know what he was talking about because they wouldn't have been taught that there's something specific and special for Britain in terms of its, in terms of its values. And right respecting is about teaching children to question and to, to debate. And so I think this inspector came out really pleased with himself. He's finally got us on something. And he said, oh, none of them could talk about British values. And I said, well, mm, that's because we don't specifically teach British values. We teach universal human values that every child can can, can relate to. So it is central to a right spectrum school. And there's an interesting thing that I, was, I, I didn't add earlier is that one of the things that attracted me at, the beginning all those years ago to right respecting schools, it was mostly secondary schools. And their, their leaders in secondary schools had spoken about the power of it. And over time, it's become more primary schools, which I think is a big shame because I think there's this thought that, oh, we have these challenges at secondary school that you don't have at primary. But our children find it very difficult if they go from a right respecting primary school to a, a secondary school, which is predominantly about you do this you get this detention and, and so on it's fascinating uh, and when you're looking at the statistics and the the roots and the differences between primary and secondary because i think the similarities are are huge and it's something that we we could really explore in a lot more detail you know learn from each other and and explore this as a concept further when i was um, part of the interviewing process i asked a question I'm sure when I joined, more secondary schools have done it. But over time, I don't know whether it's about, you know, two-thirds or a third secondary, but it, it's, I, I think it's become less popular amongst secondary schools. And that's difficult. That is difficult because there's no reason why you can't have punitive structures like detention 
within um, a rights respecting school because it de- it's a, dependent on how you use that detention. If the detention is for a child to sit there and copy out parts of the dictionary, that's different. But if the detention is an opportunity to to, to engage in some sort of reflection or dialogue or empathy about what they've done and how they might have made them feel, then it would be very powerful. And, and for children who are withdrawn or excluded or, or feel like they don't have a voice, to teach them explicitly language, the language of challenge, debate, um, to, you know, to teach the how to manage confrontation or how to manage uh, social situations, but in, in a positive and, and in a way that engages them through thinking. Most confrontations come from the inability of a person to communicate them communicate themselves verbally. And the the way in which we look at it in terms of the thinking school is about giving four-year-olds the language to say, to, to build on each other's ideas, to say, I agree, I disagree, so that by the time they're 11, they're able to say they partially agree, that conversely, I think, or in addition. And language is so powerful, especially if these children are accessing a very narrow diet of language beyond the school, if they're not reading rich, I'd say fiction or non-fiction, but rich texts, or, or they're not getting access to the language at home. I mean, there's there's a there's an argument to say that many adults are deliterate because um, I think somewhere I, I read that the uh, reading age of a tabloid newspaper is about nine years old. So if you're if you're not reading and your literature is arranged around text messages and WhatsApps and social media, then something something's got to give. You've got to get the language from somewhere. And there's and there seems to be an overwhelming sense of fairness with that language as well. You know, it's, it's rooted in in fairness, equity, uh, equality. And I, I know I remember it's from school that the things I remember the celebrations, particularly if it's public, or if you were treated what was felt in an unfair way. And I think possibly a secondary or primary, if if you're facing a consequence, if you don't feel it's fair, if you don't feel you've got a voice, that's when things can start to spiral or, or, or become even worse. Yeah, and, and one of the things we were told, and I've always realised this, is that if you introduce rights respect in schools, if you're data obsessed, your, your, your bullying log or your racist incidents, whatever, they may go up and they're very likely to go up. So people will say, well, hold on a minute, we're having more incidents. We're not having more incidents, People are just sharing them and talking about them more. And that is why, and if I go back to the start, that is why I would never want to lead a school. And I I'm, have I'm the luxury, don't I? I I'm, in some ways, I can make the decisions. But if I'm not, if I'm not um, working in a, in a school and leading in a right-respecting way, then I don't think I'm honestly giving children those opportunities to really say what they really think. And I think that's a shame in secondary schools because we need to know what these children are concerned about. We need to know how they feel. And I'd much rather know that they're worried about, they're scared of someone or Islamophobia or sexism or, or you know, sexualization. because if we don't know, we can't do, we can't do anything about it. And, and remember, a lot of abuse is peer-on-peer. If you've got the language to be able to challenge and to be able to articulate and know your rights and expectations, then I, I believe you're going to manage situations in a school in a different way. Just some feedback this morning with the, the, the new team that I've been leading, they all said that they the, 
the children love the fact that they've got more opportunities to talk and they really believe in the right to respect. And that's six weeks, six weeks in leading a school. Oh, that's so, so powerful. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I think the, the impact of what you're describing in six weeks, it, it sounds like there's no surprises that the impact of the work you've done with schools is, is so impressive as well. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued about one other thing, which is you mentioned books and we've talked about your book. Are there, what books have inspired you along the way in, in your life? For eight years, um, I did my doctorate. And so you, the opportunities for like reading of uh, a novel or for pleasure, it, it, you just don't have the time to do it. But I, I believe that that, that in-depth knowledge and understanding of factors that impact upon teacher professional learning or workplace learning theories, I, I would say it's a cumulative effect of of hearing from so many or reading about so many different perspectives. In terms of people say, well, where did you get the ideas for developing a school like this? The ideas have been out there. They just haven't gone into schools in the way that they should have. I mean, I read uh, the Fifth Discipline Field book by Peter Sange, um, which I think is written early 2000s. It talks about a learning organisation. And that's the missing link in schools. We don't... We don't have what we, I would consider learning organisation. So there was a study coming out of Chicago which, which says that the average teacher stops improving in their third year. Now, we wouldn't accept that in any other industry. So this, this concept of a learning organisation that's constantly growing, constantly developing, is, is what I've aimed for. But central to that is this, this sense of voice, that everybody has a voice. One of the reasons we have such, you know, I haven't got enough spaces here to... to to recruit all the teachers that want to work here. If you ask most of them what thing stands out, one of them is the right respect in school. Well, I'm sure you have lots of visitors and lots of people who want to come and see what you're doing. And and hopefully you have more, even more. But what's next for you, Kovan? What's next for you and your schools? Um, for f- I'm very busy at the moment with this second school, which in, you know, to inherit a school with such challenges has been very, very exciting. I know it seems strange that you can say that, but really hard work, but really exciting because I like to be challenged, I like to be tested. So that's taking up a lot of my time. And really in terms of the book, I, you know, I came in quite sort of low scale. So, you know, I had completed my doctorate, I wanted to write a book, I had no social media presence, um, I was rejected by a number of publishers. John Cat took a chance, um, and I, I'm really pleased that at, at this uh, at that level that people are responding to it because it is I'm I'm essentially a practitioner. What I would like to do, and it's the final line in the book, is how do we move from a thinking school to developing a thinking school system. Now, I, I haven't got a big plan in my mind of how to do that, but by by looking at this second school, I'm, I'm trying to say that actually you've got a problem nationally with retention of teachers, got a problem nationally with staff well-being, got a problem nationally with behaviour, according to the, what's written out there of children, and yet you've got a model here that can enable children to have the best possible outcomes, to, to have not one member of staff feeling that their, their well-being is not valued and 
children enjoying coming to school. I just think it, it, I get dismayed sometimes in terms of what I read on Twitter about the experiences of teachers, but there's definitely a model here that I feel needs to be shared more widely across, uh, you know, across our country in terms of our school system. Absolutely. Uh, in, in the previous episode to, to this one, uh, I was speaking to Emma Manda and Meg Walls, and they were looking at community involvement in supporting children with SEND and SEMH. They were looking really at a solutions-focused approach in order to try to contribute to, to Parliament and a Green Paper. What, one of the hardest parts, I, I think, with, with this is the, is the community. It's actually going beyond the school and beyond the gates. Do you have any advice for school leaders who are looking to really try to embed this in their community? Yeah, well, uh, one of the things, one of the reasons we did this is that, that when I first came to Highlands, there was such a disconnect between the school and the community um, and misconceptions. And so I had to do a lot of work. And, and this is the first basis of it. You become a right-specting school. It, it is about being a right-specting community. And what children do is and then they challenge behaviour of adults. They challenge the what they see outside in the world. They challenge their parents about where they're parking their cars. But uh, I'll give you an example of something that we've done at the second school, again, which is in a very deprived ward. And um, they were looking at um, attendance of children. And I said that Right, this is what we're going to do, is anyone who's worried about a child and they're not in school, if you let us know by 9.45, we are going to go to the house. And that may seem quite a drastic approach, but you go into the houses of the children of your school community, you will not believe the the powerful effect it has um, on enabling these children and these families to feel valued. Because a school can be a, quite an imposing place for many people, um, particularly if adults had negative experiences of schooling themselves, this connection, sometimes we can use all sorts of strategies, all unfairs, whatever, but you're often attracting the parents who already are engaged. How do we get to those more vulnerable families and support them and get into the houses to really understand what the circumstances are like and to, to, to share this vision of rights respecting is beyond uh, the school gates? And you know, we are a part of the community. And if you don't understand the context of your community, there's limitations to what you can give those children within school. So for uh, teachers or school leaders, if they want to find out more about this or if they want to find out more about your work, uh, where, where can they go? <laughs> well, I could read the book. Um, but I, I think um, in terms of the UNICEF rights respects in schools, that is that is a one of the central threads that we work from, and and then they could easily go to the UNICEF website, and it's a very um, straightforward process to try to begin that journey of becoming a right respected school. It's also fantastic uh, value for money. This is not now it's not profit making company, and in, in terms of um, understanding more about my work, um, they could follow me on Twitter, and also we we do. Um, host a lot of visits. So this since September alone, and I'm, I'm probably going to miss quite a few people out, but we've had people from every corner of England. Um, we've had principals, head teachers from Nigeria, uh, principals from India, principals from Australia, des a designation from Oslo, um, about 60 educators, uh, head teachers, principals from Amsterdam. And that's, that's just off the, off the top of my head. 
So at the risk of giving myself more work on top of the 2,000 children and 300 staff I already have, we do, we, you know, we're open to, to, to people to visit. And even at that small level for educators that have come, for example, from Kent or South Gloucestershire, they're making a small, they make an impact at that small, small level. But I am passionate in, in saying that the, this type of voice or our type of voice needs to be heard out there so that the leaders are empowered to work in a way that perhaps is more aligned with their true values. Because oft, often leaders will say, well, I can't do that because Ofsted wants this, Ofsted that, that wants that. And sometimes if you see an example of brave leadership, the uh, Highlands, when I inherited the school, was requiring improvement. Now, I don't think my bosses or the associate advisor would say, well, the first thing you need to do is become a right-respecting school. The, the previous head teacher had been asked if, she want, if they wanted to become a right-respecting school, and they delayed it. They said no because our outcomes are so low and we are preparing for Ofsted. When I, I did the opposite and said, oh, because we've, we're requiring improvement, this is the first thing we need to do. And that's... it's really resonates um i know with my my own journey in the school improvement work that i've done uh, in each of the schools that that i've had the privilege to lead it, it's been the first thing so lots of your words are, are really um you know close to to my heart and my beliefs um, that's really nice uh, to hear Cole. yeah absolutely uh, dr colvan atwal it's been an absolute uh, privilege to speak to you and, and and also to hear your views about this this subject uh, just the last thing am i right in saying was this the school that you also went to when when you were young you're absolutely right Carl. um where did you get that information from yes i did and i suppose that gives me an, an advantage in terms of um, understanding the community, but communities change, um, and that's important. But I think it says something powerful to the children that I remember sitting in that classroom, I remember sitting in that assembly, or also I remember feeling that my rights weren't respected and I wasn't valued or how it felt when someone said that. Uh, and it gives a sense of uh, ownership to the to the to the children so yeah yeah i did go i did go to highlands as a child so i you know i know what and I, I know many of the challenges that that many children face well i can only say thank you for for sharing the your views and and advice and, and wisdom uh the book is fantastic and i recommend that to anybody who you know who is interested and wants to find out more uh, and also i just wish you every success with your, the, the work you're doing in schools because it just sounds like you're doing an amazing job. Thanks, Carl. And, and really nice to have the opportunity to, to articulate, particularly in terms of rights respecting, because that isn't always a thing that, that people pick up. So it's been nice to talk about that with you. Oh, thanks so much. And thank you so much to Dr. Colvon Atwal. It's really inspirational to hear the work that he's doing. If you want to find out more, please do get a copy of his book, which is The Thinking School, available at John Cat Books. The, you can find him on Twitter at Thinking School 2. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks so much also to Tom Maguire and the Brass Holes, as always. If you want to find out more about them, it's www.tomandthebrassholes.com. Thank you to Scott Buckley, Bainey, Lukey HD. If you want to find out more, you can visit the More Teacher Talk website, www.moreteachertalk. We're also on Twitter, at More Teacher Talk. And thank you for listening.